Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie podcast with filmstage.com. As always, I am your host, Brian Jerome. With me today, we have Robin Barr. Hello. Hello. And with us to talk about the new film, The Holdovers, which is out in theaters now, we have special guest Gerald Perry. Glad to be here. Hello, hello. Hello. Very glad to have you here. Uh, would you like to uh, give a brief introduction of yourself to our audience? Well, I'm a, I guess, okay. Well, I'm a film, I'm, I'm an old, very old guy. I'm an old person. And I've been a film critic for decades and decades and decades. And I've also been a film professor and I make documentaries. And uh, I guess I do books and, and hang out and go to movies. And is that enough? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Right. Plenty. <laughs> <laughs> And we are very excited to have you here to talk about The Holdovers. This, of course, is the newest film directed by Alexander Payne. Um, yep. It stars Paul Giamatti. Uh, before we get into that, all the usual stuff up front, you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Email us, podcastthefilmstage.com. And, of course, give us a comment and a rating on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. And uh, go to patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow to uh, give us your money. For as little as one dollar an episode, you get access to our Slack channel, where we're once again talking about papooses because they're amazing. Uh, they are having a moment. <laughs> and also, don't forget that we are brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service that is dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover on Mubi. With Mubi, each and every film is hand selected, so you can explore the best of cinema streaming anytime, anywhere. What have we got going on now? First of all, there's Nimic, Yorgos Lanthimos, who's got a movie coming out that we'll be talking about later on called Poor Creatures. As we spot Poor things. Oh, what did I say? Poor Creatures? Yeah. <laughs> Edit. No, I'm going to leave it in. And then I'm going to uh, write a movie called Poor Creatures. <laughs> no, Indigent Creatures. You know what's weird is I think that I was thinking of Beautiful Creatures. Do you know what Beautiful Creatures Oh, is? yeah. The, the like, witch movie, but ooh, we can't call them a witch because we're a YA love story. So they're called Wait, casters. no. It's got Alden Ehrenreich in it. Anyway. I thought on... Beautiful Creatures was the... Now I'm the dumb one. Isn't that the uh, Peter Jackson movie? Oh, wait, wait. No. Yeah. What's the... Wait. Looking it up. Like... No, Beautiful yeah. Creatures the Kate, is... The Kate Winslet. Kate Win uh that they're both called beautiful no I don't know because I'm looking up beautiful creatures and I found uh yeah this is the witch movie so what's the what's the one we're thinking of what's the Peter Jackson movie oh heavenly creatures yeah. oh my god see look heavenly I told creatures. you I'm yeah. the dumb one heavenly creatures <laughs> to heavenly beautiful creatures. creatures to poor thing I went from fully correcting you like the only child I am to doinking the follow-up so yep yep there we you go got that was off of your one i did truth and the hubris felled me <laughs> uh i'd also like to remind people uh like we talked about family romance llc 
hyenas, Ida still on there, Sex and Lucia, and of course Popeye the Sailor meets uh, Sinbad the Sailor. So yeah, there's a lot to check out on Mubi, and you can do all of it by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that's mubi.com slash filmstage. You will get a 30-day free trial subscription to Mubi, so you can check out uh, everything that it has to offer. What's can that? I even plug a can I plug a oh, movie movie? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well I recently well, there's a great film called A Very Curious Girl, which is a film <laughs> from the, it's a 1969 film by a French woman director named Nellie Kaplan. And that was at a time when there are hardly any French women directors. And it's a and it's kind of a witch story. It's a feminist witch story with a Ooh, that sounds a, really up my alley. Yeah, it's 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 a great movie. You know what else is a feminist witch story? Beautiful creatures. Oh, which one? Which better creatures? <laughs> For 2013. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm putting this on my list. A very curious girl. It's really yeah. good. We just watched it last week for the third time in my life. It's great. Wow. It's Bernadette Lafond. You. you know who she is? She's the one of the great women of the new French New Wave. She's in lots of like uh lots of the you know, all the great directors use Bernadette Love L A F O N T. I guess a Lafon Lafon. Oh, that's the star, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The leggy Bernadette Lafon, if I'm still allowed to say that. I'm not <laughs> sure. Yes. Okay. Don't worry, we won't we won't let you get canceled. No. <laughs> I think leggy's fine. Yeah, they have legs. It is right. if you've got legs, legs, you could get leggy. <laughs> <laughs> they go all the way to the floor. Um <laughs> So once again, mubi.com slash filmstage. Um, so that's it for all the front matter stuff that we had to talk about. Let's talk about the holdovers. This holdovers. F- yeah. Wait, film. before we before oh, we get God, into no. it, hold what on. Is, what do you need from me? Jerry, you didn't fully plug your connection to this movie because I want everybody to know that we have a yeah. genuine film star in our presence today. Right. Yeah, so I probably shouldn't be talking about it and saying how much I really like it, which I do, because <laughs> I have, I, I don't know what it's called, a cameo is too strong a word. It's a, a blink in, a blink of your eye moment. Um, there's a, a tracking shot very early in the movie, and if you if you look, you will see me in the middle of the tracking shot playing a, a stodgy teacher at this point preppy at a prep school and i have no lines of course i am background but i just watched my part again tonight and i'm pretty good because uh, what <laughs> i really because i'm gonna toot my own horn but yeah, I really i'm gonna toot him. my horn well I, my two because <laughs> i because one of the the big things if you're a good actor you have to be able to listen not just say line so i it turns out that i'm listening so whoever the extra next to me is saying something and i seem to be in the scene, in the moment, and really listening and yeah, rhubarb, rhubarb, peas and carrots. <laughs> that well, that's the kind of denigrating way to look at the uh, the life <laughs> of an extra. But if you want to do that, go go ahead. But it's um, yeah. nice. Well, we're very proud of you. I definitely yeah. recognized you when I was in that there movie theater, and I, but I still think it's fair that you can critique this movie. Okay. Um, I'm and I wanted your insider input actually. Yeah. Um, well, I can. Well, I, I think as the night goes on, I can tell okay. you quite a lot. And I don't know if you know, I, 
and you know my relationship was a bit of one with alexander payne and and a little bit about you know the making of at least my one day on the what the one day i was there on the set and um things he said about the movie or other movies or so anyway they're no that's I've, what, I've, that's yeah, great that's it but but just don't tell anybody because these are secret stories. All right. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. You got well, it. Well, this is a podcast with at least dozens of followers. What? Ten you didn't tell me. <laughs> you didn't tell me. It's not just the three of us, Mike. Okay. I, I am mum. I know nothing about this movie. Yeah, I've never even seen it. <laughs> never heard of it. <laughs> nope. Which movie? I almost didn't see this movie. I arrived to the, the theater like 30 minutes late and I was like, I'm gonna walk in. And if it doesn't feel like the beginning, I'm not going to watch. I'm just going to like figure out another way to see this. And instead, I walked in right as it was starting. I was like, oh, my God, there's too many trailers nowadays. Insane. Ken Haring, you made it work. Um, so it we freaking incredible. <laughs> not So not to interrupt Jerry, because I think yes. we were going to mm-hmm. ask about sure. his uh, his nutshell thoughts about the movie. But I think you can share what what your you know general uh critique of the movie is well yeah, lay it on, Jerry. yeah. well i think it's it, i'm i'm still not sure you know we're still watching films but i think at least a, a, for american cinema it's probably the best film of the year for me you know i i have rated it ahead of the scorsese film and i rated it far ahead of oppenheimer and so yeah i really liked it there i've several kind of obscure foreign films which i'm still bandying about <laughs> which i might rate higher but anyway it's it's up it's near the top it's a it's just a solidly terrific film and it's uh as we say they don't make movies like this anymore because it is a it is completely character driven it is not plot driven it's not obviously not special effects driven it's all about these people and what happens to them and they're three-dimensional and and we I guess care about them and care what happens to them which is you know quite nice but it's a it's a as you some people probably know the film is set in 1971 and Alexander Payne is on record many places of talking about the last great era of movies the 1970s that's the the era of you know early Scorsese and the Godfather movies and Robert Altman and I guess Sidney Lumet and all kinds of um, interesting films again character drawn films and the first thought was that he was going to make a movie to kind of emulate an homage to the 1970s but what he really tried here and I think he succeeded was to actually make a 1970s film in the year 2023 so that everything about it is what if you walked into a theater in 1971 that you would see except that the, it's usually shown digitally I, i'm not very good at technical things but he also is a 35 millimeter well, at least one 35 millimeter print which is of course what all films would be in the 1970s and when when he showed when he was in boston and showed it at the uh somerville theater we saw a 35 millimeter print of this film. So we were really taken back to 1971, which was spectacular. All right. Excellent. Rob and Barr, what about yourself? 
Yeah. So I will preface this by saying that I'm a little bit biased because this movie is me in so many respects. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One being, first of all, it is my favorite. It is an homage to my favorite era of film, which is just what Jerry was describing. um, The early 1970s, the, the Altman era, it, to me, it feels like a Mike Nichols movie by way of John Irving, or maybe the other way around, like a John Irving novel adapted by Mike Nichols. Um, you know, it was definitely brought back to movies like Carnal Knowledge, um, which I think Michael's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Mike Nichols also did. And I recently watched a movie called The Sterile Cuckoo, which right. uh, I think Alan Pac- uh, Pacula, Pacula. Yep. thank you, Pacula. Uh, direct- Pacula directed, um, which is also from this era. And I just loved the visual evocation of, of this time period, even just like the opening credits, you know, is so nostalgic for me. And when I say nostalgic, I mean, like, I wasn't even part of this era. So it's hard. I can't say, well, I look back on my childhood. It's just movies that I feel nostalgic for because I watched them over, you know, the past 15 years or so of my life. Um, and, and I'm a huge fan of John Irving, the novelist who writes a, a lot about the lives of, of boys and boyhood and boyhood in prep schools um, or at least boarding schools. And so I already felt very connected to the premise of the story, which is about a kid in the 70s who um, doesn't or can't go home for the Christmas holidays and has to stay over you know, at, at his boarding school. And he has to be watched over by this sort of reluctant chaperone. Um, and it it could very well have been like a, you know, what is that? Oh, Captain, my Captain movie. Um, oh, Dead Poets Society. It could, yeah, it could be, a you know, in some ways it could have that same kind of schmaltz, but it, it has its own kind of schmaltz. It's not exactly like my my glorious teacher, you know, there's a lot of tension between these two characters and a tension that's really well diffused by um, Divine Joy Brown, who is, I'm sorry, J- Divine Joy Randolph, who is my, maybe my favorite um, supporting right. actor in film this year. I think she's so wonderful in this role and we'll get into sort of the character dynamics, but it's, it, it's a really wonderfully thought out uh, character study as, as Jerry was saying. Um some of the ways in which this movie I really relate to is even, even beyond my artistic taste um, or even my nostalgic, you know, what things that I like to watch and, and read, you know, in my teen years and my twenties I was a scholarship student who went to a pretty highfalutin prep prep type school and Uh, not prep school because I wasn't high school, but I went to a, I was a scholarship kid at a, very preppy college. And I stayed over every year for summer. And I stayed over for like many holidays. Um, And being by yourself on this snowy campus was, was uh, very palpable to me. Um, Obviously very different kind of story, but the legacy of this prep school is something very relatable to me as somebody who went to a college where a lot of these preppy kids probably ended up. and then we'll sort of get into the, we'll get into this with spoilers, but a lot of the ending was very, um, very emotionally relatable to me. So really just 
like I, I, I recognize I have a lot of biases here because I have this huge personal connection to the movie, but I'm, I'm kind of with Jerry. Like this is my favorite American film of the year that I've seen so far. There's a few that I have not yet seen, but it's definitely going to be in my top three at the very least, right. maybe top two. Robin, if I, I forgot when I'm talking about the seventies to me, the key director for this movie, and I, I forgot to mention him is Hal Ashby. Oh, definitely. And, Huge oh, yeah, Hal Ashby. Course. Yeah. And specifically the film, which we can talk about later. I don't, I don't know if you guys have seen it. The last detail. Have you seen that? I have. I've definitely heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Uh, heard it. That counts a little. <laughs> so that's a little okay but anyway it's it's very connected to the last detail which uh at some point i can bore everybody with a this character is like this in the last no detail, please but, do because really, i'll put it on my list yeah but we'll we'll get to that at some point nice um i am not going to buck the trend here i also really enjoyed this movie <laughs> Um, this movie's like made for me. I mean, as much as Robin's like, this is freaking told you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is like, this, like, okay. So one of my favorite movies of all time that I've watched constantly is Wonder Boys. Um, I, I immediately <laughs> thought of that movie when I was watching this, even though it's not, it's, it's like not of the same flavor, right, but, there, or it's like, there are like enough yeah. genre specific details mm-hmm. of like, oh, like this, like uh, off kilter teacher who has a collection of misfits and it's cold out. And it's like this, um, yeah, picaresque, I think is the word for it. Like, mm-hmm. there's just yeah. something about the vibe, man. Like, and, mm-hmm. and I love that. That is my, my juice. Um, I t- as soon as I came back from the theater, I was like, Brian, you have to see this movie. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, and of course, I was like, gonna, but like, you know, I, I like that you know me so well. Because yeah, this movie is so much my shit that I just couldn't even believe it. I was sitting in the theater and I was just like, it was like sinking into a warm bath after an incredibly yeah. stressful, mm-hmm. long seven months or whatever I've been going through. Oh. I'm yeah. just like, uh, by oh, the way, man. I'd love to, I've never seen that in an ad. What did you say? Some somewhere my some something my shit. What did you this just is say? So much my shit. <laughs> so much my shit. Can you imagine that in an ad? I love it. Not for so I would, much okay, my I shit. I can imagine that in like yeah. an ad for like a John Wick knockoff. I cannot imagine it for like uh, a, 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 like an adorable seventies pastiche. Oh. I'm gonna make my right. own photoshopped ad for this movie then it's gonna, <laughs> and it's gonna have that quote on it. What so a quote. Much my shit. Yeah, no, this like yeah, you know that's if you were to. You walk up to me and you say, I've got a movie. It's got kids in a, like a, a boarding school, like prep school kind of thing. It's got it's got alcoholism. Yeah. Rampant alcoholism in at least two different grief. forms. So much grief. There's a person with a dead child. It takes place over Christmas. And I'm just like already like a cartoon wolf just stamping my foot and hitting myself in the head with a shoe. I'm I'm there for it. And this movie is... It's uh, it's incredible. I I loved so much about it. I went and I, you know, this is what's crazy is this is one of those movies where I like left the theater and I was like, you know what I need to do is I need to read the book that this is based off of. And uh, apparently, it's not based on a book. Like this is nope. just a movie someone wrote, which isn't that wonderful, isn't that great that <laughs> we're still writing yep. movies that are like this. It's such a breath of fresh air. It fucking rules. It's funny. And touching in just the right places and just the right ways. And I just like left the theater 
at like close to nine o'clock after one of the longest weekends of my life, which followed like three other longest weekends of my life. And I was just invigorated. And I, it was one of those, it's a, it's one of these movies that makes me want to go home and write fiction. Like it's just mm-hmm. that invigorating in terms of not just like the human story that's being told, but just like, God, the craft of storytelling is incredible. Um, so yeah, I really like this movie. Uh, <laughs> B B plus. I don't know. Like, B plus. Huh? Know. It's it's definitely gonna be in I think my top three, unless like something really comes out of nowhere, and like wows me. But I mean, like, what else have we got to look forward to? Like Dune two isn't coming out until March now, so like nothing. Poor things is supposed to be really good. Yorgos. Yeah. I I don't. And when we talk about poor things, also known as poor creatures. Um, we, we could get into this, but your ghost for me is, is real. Yes or no. Like it is, it, I'm either going to love it and it's going to be top of the year or I'm going to hate it. And I'm going to wish that he would like die in a car accident. Like, and I can't wait to see which way we fall this time. But, um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not holding out. I, I don't want to say holding out hope. I am deeply interested to see what I, I think of that movie, but it's not like, you know, like a Nolan or a Scorsese coming out where I'm like, clean off a spot in the top five. There's no way it's not going to be there. Mm-hmm. But I, That's kind of how I feel about that director, whereas sometimes I'm a little, uh, I don't want to say skeptical of Nolan. He's just not one of my boys, you know? No, he's one of my boys. Okay. I'm a Nolan bro. Well, I'm a Lanthimos bro. <laughs> I, I went out. I you know, This is how much of a Nolan bro I am. It is, I live in the D.C. area. It has been raining literally all day. It is cold, it is windy, and I drove 20 minutes to a Best Buy to buy a 4K Blu-ray of Oppenheimer today because... Oh my god, you should see the jerking off motion I'm doing right now. I We don't <laughs> use uh, webcams yeah. for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so fully... I'm, probably not, I'm, probably not, I'm probably not even going to be able to watch it tonight, but isn't I that, Isn't to that, that long? Isn't that that long really boring film with the awful last act oh shit shots fired (laughs) no you must be talking about i don't know i was gonna say something else but i can't even think of uh (laughs) is that a long movie i didn't see that i didn't see that yeah uh we can i certainly saw oppenheimer (laughs) i certainly saw oppenheimer and saw it and saw it and saw it and saw it i did too but that's because i saw it like three times in theaters because it was incredible (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that well, was an interesting. But we're not podcast. talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. Yes. <laughs> um, so well, it turns out we love the holdovers, and there's nothing more to talk about. So the only, the only problem I'm having is every time I go to write the holdovers, I keep writing the holderovers, which is wrong, and I don't know why I keep yes. doing it. Very, very wrong. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Well, anyway, you used to be able to buy a pint of Jim Beam for two dollars. That's crazy. <laughs> There's right. so many oh, right. rich details in this movie. Yes, which um, is why I think that we honestly should just like open up the spoiler box and uh, just get on in there and root around it. Go for it, man. Spoilers. Hooray, everybody. Boing, boing. <laughs> so it actually would be helpful. In, first, we should talk about what is the basic plot of this movie and what leads to the major well, there's, climax. Well, there's some people um, who are holding over. Um, so... Let's see what IMDb has to say. A cranky history teacher at a remote prep school is forced to remain on campus over the holidays with a troubled student who has no place to go. 
I mean, that's, hmm. okay. that's pretty much true. That's good. Yeah, Mind yeah, that's pretty, that yeah. pretty uh, simple logline. Um, so there's this character played by Paul Giamatti, and he is one of those, like, classic hard-ass teachers who's mm-hmm. constantly quoting um, some literature. Greek <laughs> yeah, it's usually yeah. some, like, Greek, you know, Greek philosopher or whatever. And he's been at the school forever, and you kind of learn a lot more about him as the film goes on, which is that he he was a student at the school. There were some very particular reasons why he ended up back there. And so he has this almost like, uh, almost like it's like Stockholm syndrome relationship with the school where he's resents it, but it's his only lifeline. Uh, That's brilliant. um, Robin, that's a great, 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 great perception. You just came the Stockholm syndrome. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a lot of students, I mean, speaking as a former scholarship student, I think there is um, there's this belief often that the the school, whatever school you end up at that has, you know, given you this wonderful opportunity, um, you you develop this feeling that this place is like your safe haven. And a lot of people are afraid to leave it um, for whatever reason. You know, you go off. It's scary to go off into the real world. Um, you maybe you didn't have as much freedom or you didn't have as much like sort of basic necessities taken care of before you got to a school like that. And so when you kind of have to go off and and be the baby bird that flies away from the nest, um, it can it, it can cause like a lot of psychological dissonance. So here was a character that never really flew away from the nest or kind of tried and didn't really work out, um, which is another spoiler, but he's he's super interesting the film gets into a lot about how he can't really form intimate connections and in some ways doesn't want to or maybe he tries but he he has no self-confidence like there's so many layers and threads that we can really dig into here um and he has a particularly i think warm friendship with the woman who plays the, or the the woman who serves as the cook for the school played by uh, divine joy, joy Randolph, who is, it is just such an incredible performance. She's playing a woman who lost a child in the Vietnam war. She played a woman who was the child of um, a very popular student at the school who was also, you know, a, a black boy who was killed in Vietnam and what, what it means to sort of be like this, I'm not a war widow, but it, it, it kind of, she has, she kind of has to carry that at the school um, while also dealing with, you know, just the racism of the students. And it it could have been a very stereotypical role, but it's pain did not write it that way. And she does not play it that way. Um, She's not, you're like warm, I'm going to cuddle you type of person. Um, she she puts a lot of distance from other people. And then there's the the kid in the movie who has so much to do. And of, of course, I'm forgetting the actor's name. Um, if anybody has it up in front of you. Dominic Sasa. Yes. What a yeah. what a I don't know if it's a debut, but it's certainly a breakthrough. Um, because yeah. he's he's so incredible in this movie. And there are these these three people, and he's a kid who you kind of think has a lot of privilege, but then it turns out that he's dealing with way more than you would suspect um, or more than the movie lets on these three people come together and there's so much anger and resentment and Giamatti doesn't want to be there. He sort of got roped into care and chaperoning for this kid. And, and um, 
you know, uh, Randolph kind of like, she's not sure if she wants to be there, but she's like, she's happy that there's a break from the students in a way, but it's also a very dark time of year because she's without her kid and she's away from her family. And then you have the kid who is supposed to be off having a vacation with his mom and his stepdad and then, and then feels abandoned. And so what happens when you have this pressure cooker of, of three people going through very three separate types of grief coming together and trying to not even trying to find joy because they're, nobody's interested in having the joy of the holidays really. Um, but then they kind of, they kind of figure it out in their own way. Um, so I'll get off of my soapbox on that one, but I just wanted to sort of set the stage for the conversation because it is so important um, to provide context before we really get into like how, how these things play out. Well, pain who, who, kind of hates sentimentality and and tries to keep it out of his movies, but doesn't always succeed, has said that the three people, yes, I guess I have to say they they become a family, although I can't stand the thought that they become a family because that's such a cliche, of course, for cinema, that three disparate people find each other. <laughs> He's ragtap yeah. groups of misfits. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, but that's what yeah. happens, you know? Like, especially, like you can't, you can't put people, especially into this kind of a situation, and not expect some kind of bond like that to build. And that's no, they could no, they could all they could all hate each other and get more and more desperate to you know to see other people and get the hell out of there. Right, so there kinda, is a choice. There is that, a choice here. That's like Knives Out, though. Like that's a that's a whole different <laughs> kind of movie. <laughs> well. Yeah, I, I there's there's such warmth here and. I mean, I'm also a pain head myself, you know, between election and sideways and citizen Ruth, like these are some of the, like the really highest quality films I have seen across my life. And, um, and he fucking did it again. I mean, I don't even know if Robert Altman has provided me as many four star movies as I've seen from pain. And Altman is one of my favorite (laughs) directors. So, um, you know, I just can't believe it. In fact, I probably like all of Payne's movies except maybe Nebraska, which to me is a misfire. But oh, um, you can't Nebraska, win them all. But I only it's saw okay. it once. I like downsizing more. Wow, <laughs> so, that is an opinion that a human <laughs> yeah. holds. I like miniatures. <laughs> well, what what Alexander? I, I, I'm going to call because I know the guy. I don't know. I, I'm sorry if I say Alexander. It's, it's a name dropping. I don't know. Ale- <laughs> no, do he's, your thing. He's not Alex. <laughs> He's Alexander, uh, but but anyway, I asked about uh, downsizing, which I watched again and really liked the first half, and and then didn't like at all the second half. And uh, what's what's the name of the actor, the German actor, uh, blah, 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 Matt did, who's Matt also Christoph Waltz? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I said, when Christoph walks into the film, the film gets bad. And Payne agreed, and he said he hated working with him. He's an awful person, and uh, that that is some tea. Yeah, hot that's what brown tea. Hot, yes, and and but he said that that Alexander says he thinks it would have been much better if it had been a mini series on TV. That it's mm. you know it's like a two and a half or three hour movie, and it kind of dangles. But if you watch it episodically, it would be much better. And he might be right about that. 
Interesting, because you, you feel like Killers of the Flower Moon might have worked a little bit better as a miniseries. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Like, no. like, this no, is a movie. No, because the problem with that is if you make Killers of the Flower Moon a miniseries, it's eight hours long, and that's too much time. Like, yeah. that's... there's some people that would kill for eight hours of anything Scorsese. I mean, you just watch, like, four of his movies then. <laughs> well, no, but you know what I mean? They're just people who are, who are insatiable for anything that he's put to screen. Yes. Right. I, I liked. I loved Killers. So I mean, I'm not. Yeah, I also loved Killers. It, not the Killer. Killers. No, we neither of us liked the Killer, <laughs> but we loved <laughs> right, killers. killers. Well, if I if I just said I don't like downsizing the moment Kristoff walks into the film with um, with the Scorsese movie, I didn't really like the first hour and a half until. Jesse Plemons walked in the door as the FBI. And at that moment, the movie, to me, kicked in for the last hour and a half, which is a mobster movie, which is Scorsese's you know, regular ground. I like much better than him pretending to be a social consciousness director, which I don't think he is. I mean, he's always been. Never mind. We're not we're not here yeah. to relitigate. We're not talking. <laughs> oh, we're not here to talk about that. Yeah. Or about Oppenheimer. OK. Oops. Yeah, we won't talk oh, about that again. either. No, no. Let's talk about Priscilla again. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we liked it a lot. Yeah, <laughs> Just <Priscilla's> so you know. <laughs> um, so downsizing is apparently on Netflix. So maybe I'll have to check that out. Because I yeah. the, the the word of mouth was poisonous on that. And so I decided not to watch it. And yet Hong Chow. I mean, she was very close to getting an, an Oscar nomination for that. Yeah. And probably should have. Like, she's she's very good in this role. I mean, she was she's but, been great in almost everything I've seen her in. So yeah, she was great exactly. in two movies last year. She was great. Yeah, she was. And I actually really, I mean, I liked her a lot in The Whale. And, and both Brian yeah. and I liked The Whale quite yeah. a bit more so than most critics. But yeah. she was fantastic in the menu. Like fantastic in the menu. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She so was fantastic. <laughs> the, she was fantastic in The Whale, and I actually walked out of The Whale two thirds of the way through because I couldn't stand the main story, but, but I did, I stayed along. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the three leads in this movie, or at least have alluded to sort of what they do yeah. in the film. Um, but it really is, I think not just driven by this trio, but it, there's so many really wonderful uh, micro supporting parts as well. Um, like just for example, when, so the, the teenager in the movie's name is Angus and we learn, and I guess I'll just jump into this. So he's, he sort of comes off as like a snotty privileged kid in some ways, maybe like, maybe like the kid you knew who was super smart, but always had some shit to say. Um, that's at least how that that's kind of the stock character that he's playing at first. Um, so he misses his Christmas uh, vacation. They're supposed to go to some Caribbean venture with his mom and his stepdad. And you're just, you think like poor little rich boy. Um, and he, he basically makes people think that he, that his father has died. And so it's sort of like this sort of shitty situation that his mom kind of remarried some jerk, this, some rich jerk. And in the movies, he gets closer to Giamatti, although they never, it's, again, it's not really sentimental. It's all sort of done in like, I don't know, like 
in silent ways that the how they sort of start to trust each other. So at some point, Giamatti realized he's kind of fucked up with this kid. They haven't done anything. He hasn't done anything nice for him for the holiday. So he decides out oh, where well, I'm going to take him to Boston. This is what the kid really wants to do. So instead of having, um, you know, a, a more traditional Christmas, they're going to do a quote unquote field trip and do this, this thing in Boston that the kid seems to be really jonesing for. Um, and they actually start to have a really good time. Like they, this is where they really start to gel in the movie. And the Angus learns so much more about um, his teacher's sort of background and they start to really understand each other. And then um, the kid just, you know, they go to see a movie together and Giamatti thinks, oh, they're, you know, they're really bonding. And then uh, Angus just jumps into a cab <laughs> and um, and then when uh, Mr. Hunnam finds out, you know, you think like, oh, this is the end. And turns out Angus wants to go visit his father. And he thinks, oh, we're going to go to, we're going to be going to this graveyard. Well, it turns out they, you know, the next shot is them driving into a private hospital, which I think is supposed to be McLean. Um, it's not clear, but I think, yeah. I think you're supposed to assume it is. Um, and turns out his father is, probably has some kind of schizophrenia and has been hospitalized and um, lives in this facility. And it's a, it's an incredibly tragic moment. And I think Giamatti, that's when really Giamatti starts to understand this kid's character. So this is really where they, they, um, you know, warm to each other. And in the end, uh, his mom does find out what's happened and, sh- and the character, the actress, uh, uh, Jillian Vigman, she has like maybe a two minute role. You know, they come to the school. She Karen, you think she's going to be Karen. Like her whole thing is she's going to Karen out and then the kid's going to get uh, sent to military school and Paul Giamatti's going to get fired. And that's what you think is going to happen. And instead she goes into this like mini monologue about how she, it's t- taken her so long to find care for her husband. And the son's visit has really disrupted his equilibrium to the point where she now has to send him to a new hospital. And it's, it's been such a burden on her. And you realize that this is a woman who, who didn't just abandon her husband, that she still cares for him emotionally and financially and physically. um, But can't care for him in the household and, and, and then you have a little, you have empathy for her as somebody who's just trying to keep it together. And, and she, maybe she married a nice man and, and Angus just doesn't understand the hurt that she's gone through as, as this man's wife, as the, as the wife of somebody who's been so sick. Um, so I thought that was such a, a really great small role in the movie. I don't, I'm curious what people think about this thread. Yeah. Well, I don't, well, I actually don't, I'm not sure I agree with your reading of that scene at all, because you you know it's it's whether you know you believe what the mother says or don't believe it. Um, her her sounding like she really cares about her ex husband. So I've read it that she because of the other behavior she doesn't really care about her son, and her new husband is not a nice guy. He's clearly is like a military type guy, she, an asshole. Well, he's played by and, Tate Donovan. So how good could he be? <laughs> he's not good. He's not good. So, so Maybe the, he's nice so, to her. <laughs> no, but 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 her, her, the new husband is in, is the one who is really pushing sending um, Angus to military school. So he's he's a he's a bad guy in his few minutes there. Um, I think there are ways so, to to read him sympathetically, but I do think that the text that we get about him is 
not helpful in that. Yeah. Like, like he could very I well think be we like, get way less about him than we get about the mom. Right. Yeah. It, it is possible. Yeah. Like, oh, he might be trying to step in and protect the mother and the son has been a problem. And like, you know, he's apparently been kicked out of other schools and maybe the guy is like, look, this woman can't do it. Like there's a way to read him charitably, but I don't think we get a lot of that. But I do, yeah. I do, I, I fell in the, in the camp of, I like think that the mother is being earnest yeah. in her, okay. in her, you know, desire to see her, her ex-husband, you know, t- cared for well. Like she can't do it. You know, this isn't a situation where there's something that can be done. Like, you know, it just kept getting worse and now it's, it's bad again because of this thing that happened. I, I found, I really liked the fact that the movie avoids the pitfall of, trying to make a point and then undermining its own point. Like there's a, there's a super shitty student. I can't even remember his name. You know who I'm talking about, right? The blonde one who's just yeah. an asshole to everyone. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point, Paul Giamatti has to like yell at him about like, you don't know what people are going through. And he does the thing about how life is like a, a 10 house ladder. It's short and it's shitty. And the movie could then make the mother, a monster it could do a whole lot of things but it actually lives up to that premise of each of these people has something behind them that's motivating them and understanding that may not totally exonerate them but it will at least contextualize their behavior and it's funny that you know paul giamatti's character delivers that speech but still has to like learn it when applied to real human beings that he is not generally very um charitable towards <laughs> right so i love that like i i like i like when a movie doesn't forget itself because it feels like there's an easier way to go about doing something is that not the answer you were looking for robin <laughs> um i'm still i didn't mean to imply that i think the stepfather is a nice man i'm saying <laughs> like i could see a world in which that woman feels the comfort of having this person in her life because she has been through so much caring for a mentally ill partner, which is, um, which is so devastating. So it, it actually, I thought that that very small scene gave so much humanity to somebody that we could have easily been dismissed by the movie as just, you know, a witchy bitch. Yeah. Yeah, and like I said, the movie is really good at doing that kind of all over the place. Like you, you keep waiting and expecting for the lazy choice where someone is a clear villain or someone does <laughs> something that is like so monstrous. But instead, all of the transgressions are like very small and human, and all of the understandings that come from them are very like nuanced and graceful. Yeah, and there's also another character that uh, doesn't get. A, doesn't get a ton of attention and it kind of does the opposite where they come across as like the nicest person on the planet, but they never, they never get to be a hero. And that's, I think the character who, um, I think his name might be Danny. He's the custodian of the school who right. seems to be sweet on um, Mary, who is the, the school's cafeteria, like head cook. And you kind of get the sense that she's going to be swept into this romance with him and he really tries hard, but she's just like fully not interested. And I love that aspect or I love that plot point 
that what could have been such an easy, like, here's this man to sweep her off her feet and make her forget about her dead son. And she's just like, right. no, I don't, I don't want to forget about my dead son. I don't want to have this romance. And I don't want Paul Giamatti trying to hold my hand. Right. And there's also the, you know, I agree with that. There's also the thing where Paul Giamatti is starting to get a crush on that nice mm-hmm. woman who invites him to her house and uh, there's a chance Preston for romance. Character. And then, of course, she turns out, spoiler alert, she turns out to already have a man. And and in one second, that's the end of uh, poor Paul's, you know, fledgling romance. That's it. So he's back to zero. Yeah, this is a very interesting scene. So there, a, a lot of the film gets into sort of his unlovability. Um, they, and they just keep piling the shit, yes. the shit on this poor fucking guy. He's like like to the point a... where he like stinks. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like he's wall-eyed. Well, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, also he smells. I'm like, well, that could just be the kids being me. And it's like, no, he's got a medical condition. And then he like touches someone's hand and they're like, ew. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I have hyperhidrosis. It's just like, Jesus Christ, dude. We, did your father like curse God? Like, what is wrong? Yeah. Why is this happening? A, yeah, a I think strange... I think we should make that point clearer that we have a protagonist of a movie who smells bad, like and, fish. And yes. He smells like fish, and yeah. everybody and nobody wants to get that close to him for many reasons. Among that one, yeah, I don't remember in the history of cinema a guy, a hero who smells bad. Uh, there the is a character one. in the in Freaks and Geeks who has the same oh, condition, really? okay. actually. Yes, which is when I first learned of it. Someone was like, oh, they're not going to do like the fish thing. And then they totally yeah. did the fish thing. But television, not movie. That's television. true. There, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a, a screen art did it once. <laughs> um, so, so they keep piling this on and then kind of just feel like this guy just has no hope in the world and they never resolve it uh, other than the fact that you know he eventually sort of cuts the umbilical cord and allows himself to be let set free from the school at the end you're just kind of like is he ever gonna does he even want romance is he just like a romantic or beyond that in his life or we just supposed to assume like yeah maybe he'll marry like a nice greek girl like i don't know well, there is a line early in the movie, which he says that he once he was almost married and then they he and whoever came to their senses and didn't do it. And that he actually likes living alone and being alone. But again, that's what he says, whether he's right. telling the right. truth. You you have to weigh that and decide what you think. I'm almost positive he's not. <laughs> But that is my that he that he's not happy. Yeah. Oh no! I mean, no. There's and I don't think and I think that while he has gotten along being alone, I don't think he enjoys being alone. And I think, uh, but I do. This is a guy that that has no friends and hangs out with shitty teenagers all day. Like, yeah, guy's not happy. But at the same time, he still feels it necessary, or he still enjoys the company of other people when he has it. Um, like uh, with a. Lydia. He loves hanging out with Mary. Yeah, like, he he like chills out and watches it. the newly read game. Like he, like I said, he has clothed himself in loneliness and become accustomed to it. But if you were to offer him friendship, he would go for it. This is why he touches Mary's hand, despite his mm-hmm. hand being so sweaty. I don't think it was like romantic at all, but it was just like I don't think so, it was yeah. like a nice, comforting thing where he wants a human connection. And, Although at um, some point, I did wonder if he was developing a crush on her. 
because I think, I think there's a respect there. I think he's genuinely fond of her and um, sees more human. This sound, this is so shitty, but he sees more humanity in her than maybe other sort of like racist dudes at the school who just think of her as like the cook, but He's got a lot of contempt yeah. for certain people. <laughs> and one, certain one, but one thing we should mention, we should say, and it's not um, nobody makes a comment about it in the movie. It's one thing you have to think through. Um, she is called Mary by everybody, and she calls him Mr. Hunnam or Sir. So even though they are friends, there still is. She There's is a distance and a power yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody and all the kids call her Mary, call her by her first name. The the old black cook is Mary, just like mm-hmm. could be in the South. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But I think he I think my read of this character is that he is one of those guys that is so, like you said, cloaked in loneliness and hungry for intimacy that like any sort of interaction with somebody who just seemed genuinely um, caring or listens to him or can have a conversation with him, he might latch on to. Um, First of all, and I've just known a lot of people like that. I find it really insulting that you're talking about me like that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've all experienced that to some degree, but it's like there, there was somebody in my dorm um when i was in college who would just get crushes on like every girl that he encountered because at some point they would be like nice to him and friendly and then he would be like oh this could be my girlfriend and then uh and then he would get his heart broken but this happened like time and time again and actually now that i'm saying this this probably happened to me a couple of times. So maybe I'm just talking about myself. Well, this is also, um, I've decided that yeah. no one can ever love me so that I don't have to worry about making that mistake. <laughs> mm, says the man who has been married. Yeah. Yeah. And look Someone how that did love out. you, but they we, did God, love I you. Think. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could happen again. You never know. Again, uh, I was mad. I, I've been married twice and the first didn't work out. And the second one I think did. So, there's hope for all of us. I'm glad that we're, oh, you. I'm glad it worked out a second to, time. I think. <laughs> Pretty sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah, can I? Um, if we're going to talk about the ending of the movie, I might have some problems with the ending. I'm not sure. And this is. Is this it is, too pat? Uh, so this is going to take some time. So if you indulge me for a couple of minutes, please um, do. I want to bring in the movie, The Last Detail, which I mentioned before. So of all the movies that this movie might touch on, the one that is absolutely there is Hal Ashby's 1973, The Last Detail, which other people have alluded to. And and uh, Alexander Payne himself agrees that that was it's very important. And that was one of the films he showed uh, that actor Dominic Sassa. This is in the at the our our own in Boston, our own Somerville Theater, which is also in the movie. Um, he would bring Dominic Sassa to the Somerville Theater because the film was shot in New England and show him films, show his actor films from the nineteen 
70s, including the last detail. So here's the story of the last detail. The last detail is also like this movie about three characters. And one of them is, and it's a Navy set story. And one is Jack Nicholson playing this um, very blasphemous, uh, pain in the ass, kind of nonconformist conformist who is a, who, you know, gets in fights and spits and curses, but also is a, a Navy guy and believes in the Navy. And he is charged with bringing a young man who from Norfolk, Virginia to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to put him in jail. And this kid, this young kid, he's a young guy in the Navy. It's Randy Quaid. And he's stolen $40 and got caught. And now he's supposed to go to jail for 10 years in the stockade. So so the analogy, and the third person is a black sailor. So you have, you know, you have a black person, a white person, and in the center, the young man, which is are the three people that we have here. And Randy and Quaid is like super young. He's a young, he's a super young, he's a good kid. And so, so the big question is this, will um, Jack Nicholson actually bring Randy Quaid to put him in the stockyard and, and send him to jail or along the way, getting to know him well, is he going to turn around and take his side and free him in some way? So along the way, there are a couple of things that are, you know, just like our movie. There's a huge section where he takes Randy Quaid to Boston to give him his night in Boston, which mm. we know from this movie. There's a section where he takes Randy Quaid to, in this case, meet his mother instead of to meet the father. And finally, the big moment is this. When Jack Nicholson, oh, and then also Randy Quaid tries to escape in Boston, run away. It's actually, he's a run across, um, <clears throat> you know, what? what's wrong what's the what's the downtown park the uh park the the boston public Commons. yeah well yeah, across the public garden there's a chase in this movie but and uh, so ultimately and this is the big thing at the last moment jack nicholson turns in randy quaid he puts him into mm. the jail so in the movie we saw spoiler alert again the big question is whether Angus Tully is going to be sent to military school, which could also send him to Vietnam, which is the equivalent of being sent into the stockade. Mm -hmm. So after the screening at the Somerville Theater, um, a couple of weeks ago, Alexander Payne was there and he talked to everybody. It was an amazing night. I actually had five minutes with him outside the theater. And I said to him, I said, well, this is like the last detail. And he agreed. And then I said, and then he suddenly said, you know, in the last detail, it's really important. It's the correct ending that Jack Nicholson turns Randy Quaid in. That's the right ending. And then he talked about his film in which this is a spoiler alert of spoiler alerts. <laughs> um, Angus is freed at the end. And he does not go to military school because of a, a benevolent action of Paul Giamatti. And this is what he said to me. He said, you know what? I wonder if my film should have ended differently. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. But he, I mean, but he, like he, so um, Paul, played by Paul Giamatti's 
character lies and says, you know, this whole thing was my fault and uh, yeah. your kid's not a fuck up. And, you know, right. I, that's what he says. I told him to right. do this. Um, so the, let me good, say, so the so the potentially down ending, which I think Alexander Payne was insinuating would be in which one in which, you know, two things could happen. Um, one, he um, Paul Giamatti pleads for the kid and he still gets sent to military school or even more down and cynical in that room. Paul Giamatti stands there silently when the parents say they're going to take him to military school and does what he's done all his life to this point, which is not stand up for kids. And that's and that the European been... movie. Okay. <laughs> that, but anyway, the... <laughs> that but anyway, would be I... like the most, like, you know, you just fulfill your destiny kind of movie, not an American movie. Okay. Anyway, Alexander Payne was saying really seriously to me that he wondered if that, if he should have ended the movie an equivalent to the last detail. Pretty interesting. Kind of silence everybody. I'm trying. I, I you think know, it. Yeah. I. I. I yeah. I Sorry don't know. to ruin. I, what a downer, right? Yeah, what a downer. I still think this movie does it right, and I think that to end it <laughs> yeah. that way would actually be a betrayal of. You'd have to rewrite the whole fucking movie. Like there, there's no way that you could come out in the same place. Like the whole like. And one of the things I love about this movie is there's a point where, like, a man says openly to Paul Giamatti's character, like, hey, maybe try being a human being. And I'm like, well, if he's not a human being by the end of this movie, I'm going to be pissed. And, you know, you could say what you want about a movie, like, being too pat in its themes or whatever. But I like the fact that we are starting with a mission statement and we get there. And I think yeah. that him kind of being outed as a hypocrite, you know, saying like a Barton man doesn't lie, but then he lies to a friend or a former friend about stuff. Cause he doesn't want it. Like it's him coming to grips with, with his hypocrisies and like starting to hold people and including himself to a less stringent standard that he knows can't actually be maintained. And I think that him standing up for this young man who he realizes has been living a life of quiet desperation and not feeling like he can open up. I mean, that that makes the end of the movie, I think, more powerful. I mean, when he when he <laughs> doesn't go to, you know, oh, you know, the, the, the Herodotus once said, when he just says, like, that's bullshit, and then says it again, and then, you know, defends this boy, there's something really powerful in that. He's abandoning a lot of his coping mechanisms and just going for, you know, the raw humanity of what he's feeling. And so, okay, but, think, but but you is that also kind of a patented kind of sentimental ending from? Yeah, uh, I'm totally yeah, cool with that. It's, it's I fucking love it. It's version of Schmaltz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And okay. you want people? I'm to fine do with that it sometimes. too. Yeah, like I I I am I am totally cool with that. There was very little okay. in this movie that made me thought th made me thought God that made me think it was going to end with him like not standing up for this boy in some way. Um, and you know it doesn't have to be the the end of uh dead poet society um another great movie where everyone stands on the desk and says oh captain my cap and yeah. it's a purely symbolic right. gesture but it at least lets you know that yeah. they have actually been changed by this guy like you know right. it's smaller well, than can that. I, it's can also I, not you might imagine from my that i hate 
despise dead poet <laughs> society not a and find it a completely dishonest and and any teacher who acts like that should be fired who acts like that idiot but um anyway but i'm not sure about this but let, let me just add it's not just european films so this is kind of interesting virtually every short story ever written has a kind of pessimist ending it's uh, short stories are always about how people have aspirations and they finally end up nowhere they then end up at a lower place than they began short story after short story after short story it's interesting so movies for some reason have this expansive way and of course the best directors you know I mean, there is obviously there is such a thing as an earned happy ending which i do believe in which i like above all but i'm still not sure about i actually watched the ending again today because uh, we just got a link Yep. And I'm not sure what I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I completely respect that you love this ending on a movie that you really love and who wants to have it, you know, turned <laughs> to crap at the end. But um, I'm not sure that it's the right ending. I don't know, but I'm not saying it is. What isn't. would feel more right that he would sort of uh, go back to his right, or, was... or maintain his cowardly ways and, just you know well, for the cowardly sake of that's i mean his code is to be separate from students that's always been his code yeah. and also and yeah, but, uh, you so know. there's that line in but he hides the, behind the, the stability of the job also well there's that line in in no country for old men that's like if the rule brought you here what of what use was the rule right like and that's kind of like what this movie is about like sure he's been living in this certain way but like has it been good for him like is his life markedly better like what's the no. point of holding to this dogma <laughs> if it's just gonna make your life shit so but it makes shit. sense to jump away from it yeah no but i you know i i guess i believe this is my general look at art is that i believe that People rarely change that people are, you know, yeah. people end up being more themselves and they've, they just reveal their old self 99% of the time. So when there's that, a That's shift, what I'm referring to. Like when I say like, oh, it would have been a more European movie. It's like yeah. Europeans just uh, the sort of cyclic nature of, of or the cyclic style of human nature was much more important in that kind of storytelling whereas right. in american storytelling it's like who learned a lesson who changed yeah. who's a dynamic yeah. character well, so what's interesting and that's such about an that, emphasis though, is, and maybe this is just my friends but everyone who i know who has become more themselves has become more the better parts of themselves well, well that's very good that's nice oh, for now yeah, that's nice <laughs> well, yeah, yeah for or, now yeah. on the long enough timeline okay. anything could go to shit but if the timeline keeps going longer they might get good again like I've recently had reason to communicate with a friend of mine who was one of the most unconscionable, terrible human beings that I knew. And he and he was your friend. Yeah, he was like one of my best friends. We <laughs> spent a lot of time together. We had a lot of fun. And and recently we reconnected and he has made great strides in becoming less of a terrible person. And like is is living a a better, more balanced life. And it's the life that you could always feel him wanting, but never admitting to or never allowing himself to believe he should be a recipient of. And right. likewise, I have a lot of like crazy friends who have calmed down and have abandoned more nihilistic antisocial behaviors in order to 
like find the life that they always thought they hated, but to understand there's like comfort and goodness in it. I mean, it's the end of Clockwork Orange, the novel, um, versus the end of Clockwork Orange, the movie. Like in the movie, Alex, I guess spoilers for Clockwork Orange, I guess. In the in the <laughs> movie, Alex, you know, gets a blood transfusion, the medicine's out of him, the Ludovico treatment is undone, and he ends with like an image of like rape and, and murder in his brain, and he's so excited. And in the book, there's a, another chapter where he's older and he's not doing that anymore. And he runs into one of his friends who is like getting married and is just like, oh, shit, do I want that now? Like there is right. a change. And that's that's a European author. So even but like, well, 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 Kubrick, well, you England's be, not Europe. Well, Kubrick oh, my is, God. <laughs> well, you know, well, Kubrick would never have anybody learn something and be changed by the end you know and I, and that's what i think alexander payne i said i think he i think why i relate to alexander payne is that i am between you know being a romantic and idealist and i hope a good person and also a terrific cynic and pessimist and that and that's what his films are always kind of about about on that you know between you know him being sometimes considered someone who makes fun of his characters to someone who you know loves the characters he makes fun of or does he in this case just love them and not make fun of them so he's always on that cusp so that's why i think he was he is genuinely wondering about his own ending uh, for this movie because i think he might feel a little bit that he's it's a betrayal of what he believes that you don't really learn or especially you don't learn in the last moments of a movie because that's what 99 percent of american movies do so like we you like we all brian all the friends you're describing i'm really glad they're all doing better but like if you if you you say you're a writer or a short story right how would you write their story in a way that they're getting better is not just sentimental crap and how would you express it? How do you so, put so it I down? I think that what's interesting about that is you, you bring that up about short stories. And one of the things that I love about short stories is that their scope is usually very limited. It's usually something like this where it's like it takes place over a a distinct period of time. And it has like some of the best ones are like, you know, it's an afternoon and someone's just thinking about something. So that would be the way to do it is you linger with someone who is almost maybe realizing that they've changed and thinking about the ways in which they used to be and you give all that context to it. And this movie does nothing but layer on context. I mean, like we learn there's a great point where mm -hmm. he's like, I want to write a monograph. Um, you know, a monograph is just a shorter book. And she's like, I know what a monograph is. You can't even dream a whole dream. Like, really, yeah. which is like a line Great that line. I, it was me and like another couple, like the entire theater away from me. And I cackled like Katie in Cape Fear when that line was spoken. Mm -hmm. But we get a lot of stuff like that. I mean, like there's, there's so much about this movie that is, is saying basically this man has probably been at a breaking point for longer than he's known. And that it's this moment, this stressor, this catalyst that's finally going to push him over. I mean, like. He, it's not like he just became a curmudgeon and is now breaking out. Like generations of students are aware of this man's curmudgeonhood, but we get to learn about all of the years of that and everything that's been going on that changes it. And I think it's, it's only sentimental if you do hold 
the view of the world that no one ever changes, which I think uh, for good and for ill is completely untrue and is usually just uh, like, you know, and even in Mad Men where they say like the problem is wherever you go, that's, you know, it's you're still you. There are still characters in that show who are still themselves, but have found the situation in which they can be happier or more true to themselves. So like, yeah, you're always still you, but maybe then the problem is that the places you're going are not the places you were meant to be. And so that's why it doesn't end with him getting a girlfriend and staying at school because he's not meant to be at this school and maybe he's not meant to be with a girlfriend. Maybe what he's meant to do is to go to Greece alone and fill the empty pages of this journal, which is a really nice looking journal. Um, with his and have the and Indiana ideas. Jones moment that right. Indiana Jones was that was Die robbed of him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I will never get over that. Yeah, I'm still pissed about that too. Um, no, I, I agree with you. Um, I and I'll just to bring up another sort of controversial philosophy. I am I do not believe that I don't I don't really believe in altruism. Um, I think somebody always gets something out of doing good for others, and in this case. I think Giamatti's character knew the stakes of what he was doing and, and he didn't just do it to quote unquote, save Angus, but to boost, to um, get himself out of a toxic situation, essentially. Like maybe he didn't hundred percent know if he was going to get fired, but he knew he had to light a fire somehow to, to free himself. And he ultimately does, he has to get out of this, this place, this place that is like solely suffocating. And maybe it was um, a haven for him at some point. Maybe it, it, maybe it's too safe a place and he needs to grow in other ways, or at least, you know, go somewhere else. You know, he's the kind of guy that like never even leaves campus really, which is even more depressing when you think about it. So I think, I think he uh, did it. Yes. For Angus, but also to also for himself. Well, well to, to boost, to bolster your position um, in, in the scene in which he um, defends Angus, he also swears like really in a real bad way, the, exactly the way you get fired. And of course, he has that line when he walks out of the room where he, you know, where he <laughs> you know, says that the principal has penile disease or penile cancer. Yeah, he's the you personification of yeah. penis yeah. cancer. I, yeah, penis cancer. So anyway, yeah, if, that kind of gets you fired. I think that. So, yeah. So I think you're right, Robin, that at least the way it's written. And I'm not convinced that I believe the writing, but as it's written, he, you are you are correct to say that he is saying things that he knows he's going to get fired. He just had to go out with a bang. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that about like, I mean, altruism is interesting because like today um, I over the last couple of weeks, I, I did a, a winter clothing drive for a local elementary school um, because in helping to deliver a fridge there, um, I learned that like a lot of the kids don't have cold weather clothing and um, like they'll come to the school in, in like snow with just like a, a hoodie on if even that much. And so I was like, well, you know, I can help to organize like a, a coat drive or whatever. And I did. And I got a bunch. Uh, apparently a lot of people have uh, clothing that they don't need or some people went out and bought some, which was awesome. But I, I was, um, as much as I had shouted about it on social media, cause I wanted people to bring me clothing. 
uh, there was a point when I had laid everything out so I could take account of it and see what what we had gotten and you know make sure that none of it was awful and shouldn't go to a bunch of children and their parents. And I I took a picture and then I was like, I'm not going to post this on social media. Like that's gross. I'm not doing this to be a good person. But then when I dropped it all off and this person thanked me for it, I did feel like a sense of elation that I had never. <laughs> I'm like, a I, good person. Yes, right, it's yeah. true. Yeah. You, but Brian, you, you are a good, you are a good person. That's really nice what you did. Well, thank that's you. very nice. You are a good person, right? And and like, yeah, I'm not doing it. <laughs> right, so that I am. People, I'm not doing it so that people will think of me as a good person. I do like being hopefully recognized as a good person. But there was something about like a lot of what happened today where I was just like, what am I hoping to get out of this? And even if it, even if it's just that moment of like being thanked for it like was that it was that why i did it like that's and it feels weird but like maybe that's just the motivating factor to do good is to feel as though you have done good like i i don't know and so it did make but, me wonder so that's about, my like, point that about altruism? altruism right exactly because like, even I, though i'm not yeah. about to try to like win an election on it because i've already lost um or like you know get more friends from it or something like even though there's no material gain the mere fact that i felt good about it was yeah, you thing. sparked joy and thus you got something out of it. So the exactly. only person that is truly altruistic is somebody who is completely devoid of any feeling about any good that they ever do. So like the only true yeah. altruism is when you drive a friend to the airport because you hate doing it. Their thanks no, means but nothing. you love doing it to impress them because you have an ego. Uh, because uh, maybe I was about to say, I don't think anyone the ever does the feeling of getting the kiss at the end. Like, I don't know. Yeah. There's other motivating factors. I, so, so again, I don't think anybody purely does anything just because, you know, it's the right thing to do. Um, even if you are just like a sucker who feels good after doing something, you know, like a mitzvah or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I feel like we've focused a lot on, Paul's character. Um, I would love to talk a little bit more about Mary because I think Payne is doing something very different in this movie. Um, this character could have been window dressing. Um, she could have been only featured in scenes with the other two characters or with, with one of the other characters. And instead she gets not only her own thread, but she, but you see her in spaces where she is not with these two people and she really does feel like um, a more, a, like a richer character, a more elevated character than she would have been maybe in the hands of a different type of writer or director. Um, for example, you know, at some point uh, when the characters go to Boston, you learn she's from, I think, Roxbury. Roxbury. Yep. And so you kind of think, oh, maybe they'll just drop her off and, and whatever. But instead of just, you know, dropping her off, you see her with her family. You see her um, experience the, that joy and sorrow and and the feeling of seeing her sister who is pregnant after after she just lost her own son. And I don't know, it's just like, I don't think I would, I don't think any other filmmaker would have included those scenes. And yet they were so important to the film. Yeah, I agree. That was that was pretty radical. That scene, I had exactly the same thought that you had. He's going to drop her off in Roxbury, and then we'll stay with the two white characters. And instead, mm -hmm. to, to my total surprise and your total surprise, we 
had like about a six or seven minute kind of interlude following her and her private life away from the guy. But let me, uh, um, so this is something I don't agree with, but I will just bring it up anyway. So I talked to a woman who had edited a book of an uh, Alexander Payne interviews and she saw the movie and she really liked it, but she had, and she's again, just the way I read, I'm not sure how I feel about the ending of this movie. I'm not saying it should not have the sentimental ending, but she had a question about Mary's character. And she said, I wonder if Mary is the, the, the famous trope of the magic Negro. So what is that? Well, the magic Negro for people who don't know is this idea that black characters are sort of put into movies as kind of the conscience of white people that they are that they're they set an example for white people to act in a better way but it's really about the godmother they're fairy god but it's really about the white person they're 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 used as a as a a device really they're not a person they're a they're a a device which is and i think spike lee is has spoken of you know and mentioned a bunch of movies which he feels have magic negroes in them and so so she raised it about this character. The only the only couple of places where I could see there's uh I'm not sure again of the scene right near the end when Mary comes in and brings the uh brings a an open what is it? A, a, a it's a, not a manuscript, a, a no, notebook. It's, yeah, it's the journal. Yeah. Brings a journal for so that he can write his, you know, his his paper that his monograph that he wants to write. And that she's kind of a she is kind of a little of a nudgy conscience who has the right answer and the moral moral person helping a white person at that point. Maybe that moment. Maybe when she holds Angus's hand. Yeah. Uh, when he feels like he's about to be expelled. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I I definitely think that that is possible. I think she's um, there in a support capacity emotionally, but I don't think she's there to advance them. I don't know that she like I don't I don't know that anything she does materially impacts the decisions that are made, except maybe her shaming uh, Paul Giamatti's character into taking Angus to Boston. Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I understand. Like the, the like it's not there's nothing here that's bagger Vancey. That's I was just going to say, like, right. that would be the driving Miss Daisy. Yeah. Like, she's that there. The she's a fully actualized person who has her own emotional arc. And yep. it, it it exists independent of them. But, like, they do. They do form this, like, little unit. And they will understand each other more than they understand. But also, I think... You know, I just I just remembered that like the way that Angus leaves the movie is to say like see ya and then like run away. Like I feel like that also undercuts a lot of like the schmaltz or the uh the sentimentality because you know it's not him standing on a bench and watching as Paul Giamatti drives away. It's not him saying like you've truly affected me and I'll never forget you and like you know blah blah. blah. It's like all right, see ya. And, like youthfully jogging away after saying that. I think that that helps yeah. a right. lot. I, and I think that that's the kind of energy that, you know, she doesn't go, she like comes and asks him what he's going to do. And she's like, you know, oh, I'm glad that you said that. But she's not, she doesn't sit him down and go, now you look, Paul. Paul Giamatti's character is also named Paul. So every time I say yeah. Paul, I hesitate. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, no. same. So look, Paul, 
you know, you're you're a smart man and you're going to do great things one day, you fish smelling son of a gun. You got to go to Greece. Like you can't go and try to find another private school. But you got to you like the world is owed your monogram on the camera camera obscura. Like no, she just comes in. Yeah, there's no monologue. Right. Exactly. As a friend and is like, "What are your plans? Cool. Here's a book. Do your little monograph." Yeah. Peace. Yeah. But she doesn't call him Paul. Very important. She calls him Mr. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Hunnam. Yeah. She calls it's, him by his name. This is a question that came up for me when I, I recently, maybe within the last week, listened to a podcast on Hattie McDaniel. And it was the You Must Remember This episode on on McDaniel. And this is a, a woman very famous for being the first uh, Black person and Black woman to not only be nominated for an Oscar, but to win an Oscar. But she wins it for her role in God with the Wind which is a movie that, um, you know, has been highly critiqued over the years for, for peddling in racist tropes. And the character that she plays in this film is, is called Mammy and, and it's embodying in some, in many ways, a, a stereotype of like the old South. And, um, you know, essentially that this, this, this type of character is a black woman who only lives to care for the whites in her life. And, um, and it's like a safe place to be in, so to speak. And and McDaniel got a lot of criticism when throughout her career. This is not just, you know, people looking back. Uh, the NAACP was very critical of Gone with the Wind um, when it was being filmed. And then afterwards, you know, she she was sort of taken to task for um, embodying what was seen even at the time as a stereotype and a harmful stereotype. And her response was, um, you know, I could make $700 a week as a maid, or I could make, you know, $7,000 a week playing one. And she's, she had to really walk a, a tightrope of, you know, pleasing the studios, pleasing audiences, pleasing um, the, you know, the people in her demographic, it, she, she had a very difficult role here. And, one of the ways that um, Karina Longworth talks about this character and the types of characters that Hattie McDaniel played is that she played not just sort of simpering carers, but but women who often talked under their breath and, or were, um, what's the word, like sort of secretly or sort of, not secretly, but, you know, rebellious, um, always had, you know, some shit to talk and it wasn't exactly the sort of, um, you know, someone slavering over you or whatever um, type of character. So I was, again, thinking about Mary's character in this, in, in this context, because she's not, she's more than just the care that she plays. You know, she's not just somebody who's like, I'm cooking for the school and I'm going to take care of, you know, Paul, or I'm going to take care of Angus. Like she, she's just trying to live in her own grief. You know, she had a, a, a star son who was a very popular person at this school and he was killed. And then it's not just that she lost her son, but she lost somebody who was a, a really important legacy of the school being sort of like, um, you know, probably one of the only black students that ever graduated from this, this really prestigious um, prep school. So she has to, I don't know, like, like both main be a carer in some way because she has to feed people, but also she just kind of wants to be left alone at the same time. I'm, I'm curious if, 
uh, if she is embodying some element of this of a this other type of stereotype, like maybe she'll get a lot more criticism of uh, as Oscar season goes on for for this character. But I don't know. Uh, I, I it, it I don't know. It, it's kind of like watching Killers of the Flower Moon. Like I get every critique of you know indigenous people who have said like this movie sort of flattens the experience of you know osage people and at the same time i don't think that scorsese was like insensitive to what he was portraying and i kind of see this the same way like it's a movie that kind of peddles a little bit in stereotype but does way more than what you know a typical film would have done with a character like this well, I think Alexander Payne is saying there would be a black cook at this place. He actually, you know, he cast like all the kids. I think there's one black kid at the school. So he, and he, you know, he's not being a racist by having only white black kid at the school. He's making a point about he's trying to be authentic about. Yeah, he's trying to be yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I and I, you know they also include the um the Korean boy, right, and then have mm-hmm. someone actively being the kind of racist that unfortunately a, a Korean kid would, would run into, you know, basically being called every wrong Asian ethnicity on the way to a bunch yeah. of really terrible jokes that are luckily delivered by a boy who is actively despised by everyone around him. Right. Yeah. And I think some directors might have, sunburn, so I see, I, that's what I appreciate about what, what pain is doing is like, he, he's showing what it probably, could have been like or was like for for many of these students right. i think it would have been a disservice to the film if he populated the the characters like if there was sort of like a i want to say like a false diversity but do you know what i mean where it would have just felt like sort of too disneyland to have characters that that were you know non-white but then also like was never commented on because that doesn't seem like it would be likely for the period right so with the things i raised about her i guess i don't mostly agree with i think she's a pretty great character yeah i agree but i but i think there are important points that i thought of especially as i was like you know thinking about this that's what i was um, talking about earlier where the movie sidesteps so many landmines that a movie like this could make if it was written less intelligently and directed less like emotionally intelligently like all all of this like like i said like it's so easy to have the mom show up and be a a harpy and instead they really imbue her with like the sadness and the heartache of a woman who had to go through this situation you can still say like that's not an excuse to like abandon your child in a boarding school but there, he even he is like you know. I think like seeing me makes her think of him, and there's a level of of heartache that can be a part of that that is not cold, but is actually quite the opposite. You know, it's it's trying to avoid picking at an open wound, and in the same way, every time they introduce a character who you almost kind of freeze up and you're like, oh god, is this going to be one where they trip up? They they work it with such intelligence of emotion and such feeling. That it's not a problem. I mean, like, like thinking back to licorice pizza, like there was that man who was um, marrying the Japanese women. And the way that that was played was like deeply uncomfortable because I don't think the movie 
like leveraged as much of its talent as was necessary to really say what the movie felt about what he was doing. And in this that was movie, the guy that was doing the sort of like like he was uh, pretending to speak Japanese. But he was yeah. just yeah, it was weird. Um, and like sure, it's awkward, and you can say whatever you want about it. But I think this movie is much more clear in how it feels about these characters and in granting them a fundamental humanity that makes you realize that they are, it is not on the side of whoever's saying something shitty. <laughs> right. And I, I think that that is to its credit. And I think that what's funny about this movie is watching it. You're just like, this is great. This is wonderful. And it, you don't even notice all of the subtle things. It's, it's having to get right to make this work. And there's such an effortlessness in the execution that we are seeing. I'm sure it took a lot of actual effort to make it happen, but there's just nothing. There's no like, there's no falsity. There's no sense that things are on rails. And like, for me, you know, the ending did not come off as like schmaltzy and sentimental. Like the, it felt very real or, or at least the kind of real that you'd like in a movie. You know, I'm sure that in reality, this would be all be a lot more difficult, but when you're watching a movie like this, <clears throat> that adheres to a level of reality. That's the way it's delivered theatrically. I don't even. Do know you think this guy? <laughs> and because you're bringing up questions for me about, I don't know, just like the joy, <laughs> the joy that you can extract from life. Does he like being a teacher? I mean, in the few scenes that we see of him. It's not like stand and deliver where, you know, he just wants to like inspire these kids. He feels like they're shitty little pricks and he wants to inflict a kind yeah. of revenge on them. Right. Yes. And, I think and, you described yeah, it. Absolutely. That, that's it. Exactly. That's <laughs> what you just said is a completely I'm trying to, I wrote down the first line he says in the movie. And now, of course I can't, Find it somewhere in my notes. Da, 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 da. So, yeah, I can't. Okay, his first line is, Philistines, lazy, vulgar, vulgar, rancid little Philistines. Philistines, lazy, vulgar, rancid little Philistines. That's what he says, and uh, <laughs> that's what he feels about them. Yeah. So yeah. he learns in the movie, good or bad. <laughs> well, he mean, definitely he, learns. Yeah, yeah. I, like, he he's definitely got some class-conscious hatred going on. Yeah. Um, and we right. learn about his time at Harvard and what may have uh, <laughs> added to that. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but and it, and it's funny because it does it does take a lot of people to kind of break that from him, as I think it would from all of us. Because you do you look at people with money who are able to go to a school like this, and it is very easy to hate them because yeah. there's a there's a level of like you you're born on third kind of going with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, like the whole the whole point of the movie is you don't really know what's going on with someone. Like, and and what's funny is he has so many moments where he does that. I just remembered the other one where they were in the bar and they were trying. The whole fight breaks out over the pinball machine, and when they leave, uh, Angus is like, "Why did you buy him a beer? Like, you know, he's this like bully. He was like doing all this stuff." And and Paul Giamatti's like, "You th like how many how many people have to live with getting their hand blown off? Like, this is not." someone who's just an asshole like there is a reason behind it but he's not willing to look for that reason in any of the rich boys because to his mind the class covers up all of the possible complaints that they might have and right. it takes this boy with an extraordinary amount of complaints 
And even realizing that they're on the same prescription medication for depression. I loved that. Start. Yeah. How it like yeah. it's it's kind of awesome that the movie is like, let's give them a lot of things in common. Let's one of them be the prescription drug that they're taking. Can't be good for your medication that you're also drinking. Oh fuck no. As heavily <laughs> as you are. Like that's like uh I don't know. I forgot what I was going to say. Well, I think, you know, one thing you're kind of leading to is that the young boy is kind of the, you know, the old man is a a young boy that they're slightly doppelgangers. And that's what I was watching when I was rewatching the movie today. It was interesting. I was looking at it more formally because, you know, I know the story. And first of all, I was seeing how beautiful all those scenes in the snow are just absolutely poetic uh, yeah remember snow in new england that was nice that was nice but just watching like boys marching along the sidewalks in this it was really lovely but i noticed that uh at the moment that the helicopter comes in and takes away all the other boys so i don't know if you know uh, and we're only left with angus and paul paul giametti that at that moment um Alexander Payne starts showing us visually that they are kind of doubles. There are a couple of shots where you see them in the frame looking at each other and they look like the same, like a mirror image of each other. And then there's a shot. This is, I don't know if I invented this term or, but I think I did, um, of, of a, a shot, what I call a shared POV shot. And this is a shot in which two characters who are doppelgangers you see both of them in the shot and they are both looking at the same thing in you know or it's their point of view and they're looking at something but it's both of their points of view you understand what i'm saying so they're so they together are watching the helicopter rising in the air it's a shared point of view shot in of both characters and that's the way in which they kind of meld formally end of my point <laughs> my academic maybe boring academic point no not at all i mean is, if yeah. anything it just emphasizes to me that paul giamatti's character is in arrested development you know yeah. it's not so much that angus is wise beyond his years or an old soul it's that paul is stuck and he's stuck still resentful of the classmates like you 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 mentioned um brian you know still resentful of the shitty pricks that he went to school with resentful of the shitty pricks at harvard and resentful that he uh kind of has no recourse out you know it's like if you can't what i say like if you can't do teach like he kind of is stuck in that situation um and for somebody who is an intellectual um you're kind of stuck in this cycle of of eternal return with even the books mm-hmm. that you read like yeah. <laughs> you yeah. only read the same curriculum over and over and you do that for however long 30 years like you're just you're going right. nowhere and you're he's spinning making it, he's making it rote and he's not making it germane to the the kids like when they go to the museum angus even says like why don't you talk about it like that like why don't you why don't you ever try like it's almost like it's it's a badge of honor to make something as boring and dry as possible and right. to make the others suffer it's... with it exactly right. yeah so yeah man <laughs> this movie's so good 
this movie is so <laughs> cynical about teaching. I that's what makes it like the anti-teacher movie in a way because it's it's not about the joy of touching someone's life. It's like the joy of getting the fuck out of education. (laughs) (laughs) Deep down in the heart. But everybody's had everybody's had that teacher, right? Everybody's had clearly wants to not be there. (laughs) Yeah, just smirking and give yeah, and doesn't want to be there and is giving all antiquarian antiquated knowledge that nobody gives a shit about and he doesn't even care about anymore except just mouthing it and uh yeah. I mean, I had, I once had a teacher, I remember as an undergraduate, this scowling guy who was supposed to, the rumor was that he had a plate in his head that he'd been, oh, I, don't, I don't know where that came from, but, but he was just always smirking and his name, his name was Dr. I remember it was Dr. Sprouls and someone who just one day couldn't, and he insisted on being Dr. Sprouls. And one, and I remember this girl just one day went up to him and said, "Hi, Mister Sproles." Mispronounced his name and called him Mister. Somebody in this, just like, just like a character in a movie would do, right? This this moment of anarchy, and and watching him turn red at Doctor Sproles being called Mister Sproles. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that from you know fifty, sixty years ago. But yeah, he his comeuppance. But he was Doctor Sprouls was this guy today. It was yeah. So he's he's a completely believable curmudgeon of a teacher, Paul Giamatti. Yeah. And what's funny is that like this could be such an archetype, and it is it is an archetypical like character role. But he makes it such a person. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's and it's funny. It's weird that like that 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 face that he makes when Angus dislocates his arm has become like the poster for this movie oh yeah that was such a great scene it's just such it's such a face oh my god it really emphasizes you can't go home again i mean i once read this book called the interestings by meg wollitzer and it's about this um group of friends that meet at an arts camp in western massachusetts in the 1970s you kind of see how that camp influences them as they all go through their lives and this one character is like so obsessed with the camp that she went to that she eventually buys it as an adult and kind of realizes like when you're in your forties running a camp is very different than being a teenager (laughs) going to camp. And it's sort of, you know, it's like you see how the sausage is made and it ruins your nostalgia for the thing. Um, Cause I, I've often, I really loved my undergraduate experience and I've often joked like, Oh, maybe I should go and like work at, you know, my alma mater. And Nick is like, no, like, (laughs) You will see how it works and it will ruin like all, uh, you know, all your all your joy and all, you know, your happy memories of the place. And I think that's kind of probably what happened to Paul, too, is like he uh, he loved Barton. It it sprung him to Harvard, which is supposed to be, you know, like it was supposed to be the apotheosis of his educational career. And that kind of burned out in flames and and then he goes back to this place that was safe for him. You know, the the headmaster like took pity on him and took him in as a, as a teacher. And it, it it just rotted him. Like now he, he sees how the wheels are greased right in front of him. Like, Oh, like I went to Harvard and I never looked back. And someone's like, well, that's not true. You literally work here. Yeah. (laughs) Like, how can you say that you're here? Why do you think you never looked back? 
Yeah, it's really atrophied him. It is. So I think I the a, most a, the oh, most common example of of you know the connection between I don't know, I was most so much prep school as universities is all the the many 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 people in America who have gone to a small college and loved it and then have moved back to that town. That, mm-hmm. That's all over. But like the like Dartmouth is a perfect example. There, I've thought about moving to Amherst. <laughs> we've we've talked what? about it. I, I I was gonna say I've thought about moving to the town of Amherst. Like I, it's a nice little town in you know Western Massachusetts. I've definitely and that's where you it. and that's where you went to college. You mean I went to Amherst College. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You could walk by your college all the time and yeah, little it stores like are there. Hell. Yeah. I, mean, I, I live in I live in the the town that I went to college in, but it's like not. I don't care. I don't know. Like my least favorite part about it is the fact that the college is here. If I'm being completely honest, I lived right. here because it was an affordable suburb of DC, which was where my job is. So, I mean, yeah. but also you like, you know, complete honesty, the university of Maryland is a fine institution. The city of college park is a shit college town. Like you're saying like, Oh, the little shops and everything. Like it's, yeah. it's awful. It's all chains. Like there's very little, there's very few like, oh, this is like a college institution. There was one place, it was called the Bagel Place. It closed because uh, the landlords here are predatory and terrible. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like I I wish that I lived in a place that held something like that to me. I love reading these novels that take place at colleges where it's like, ah, oh, the town. Like to go back to Wonder Boys. Wonder Boys seems great, you know? where they go to school and like it's connection to the city and every and like ooh this school is throwing word fest and the whole city's excited about it and here someone could tell me that something was happening on campus that was the biggest thing in the world and I'd be like what I had no concept of that that I did not know that was happening yeah. It's kind of sad well, actually, well I well I got I got my PhD from University of Wisconsin Madison and that's that's a, a place of nostalgia and i was there in the 60s i'm you know old radical and and you know my wife always said said thinks when you want to go but you know don't you want to go back to madison now and live there and live your 60s life all over again i said no i don't you sure you sure act like it yeah so yeah. i get it i get it yeah it's uh so i i um, it's just a random question does paul giamatti have strabismus like nick my husband i could not figure out my husband and I cannot figure out if this was something that he has as a person or if they did some kind of like digital I don't know (laughs) oh wait strabismus is that what is that the technical term I think so it's like when when you have one eye that is sort of like wandering or I am almost positive that I would have noticed yeah previously it's not like he doesn't how did they do it i don't know like a like a like a contact lens but isn't that supposed to be static like Hmm. the the eye would have been static but was it i don't know Hmm. i have no way of answering this oscar for prosthetics oscar for visual (laughs) effects like yeah i don't know i was like i was like oh maybe he does and i just never noticed I don't think he well, does. Like, no, I because I feel I feel like in the when I first saw the trailer, which again ends on like a freeze frame of him looking shocked and his eye being off and wonky, like because people have one eyelid that's usually lower than the other. Like, it's very rare that both of your eyes are open at the same to the same extent. Um, 
And I noticed that all the time, but I was like, wow, his eye is like really off on a, on a tangent there. Um, and I feel like I would have noticed that before. I just feel like there's no way that that would, that especially as pronounced as it, as it is in this movie that I would have, I would have seen that. So I think I, they must've done something. Well, the only thing I noticed in the trailer was me again, because I'm also, <laughs> I'm, I'm also in the trailer and that, and that I, I thanked Alexander for putting me in the trailer. He said he had actually he had nothing to do with it. That was a studio, but he's glad I'm in the trailer. That's what he said. Like I can say the one thing. Uh, this is a non sequitur. I was really hoping to meet Paul Giamatti the day that I was on the set, but he was off that day. And the reason I wanted to meet him was that he, like me, he is a huge, huge collector of used books, and uh, he oh, read Yaley shithead. Yaley shitted, but I, but I, but but he also re according to Alexander Jamadi reads a, two or three books a day. That's all he does. He sits around and reads all all day long. That's his life when he's not acting. Reading. Isn't he from an academic family? From what I remember, yes, his father was the president of Yale. And uh, oh God, what a nepo baby! Yep. <laughs> yes. This movie must have been his bread and butter. He probably could have acted this in his sleep. <laughs> Uh, oh, so I was listening to a podcast with Kyle Buchanan. He went on Matt Bellany's um, uh, Hollywood podcast. And they they were talking about how this has been a really weird Oscar season because of the strike. And the holdover has kind of disappeared a little bit from just the conversation. Um, but Kyle was like, maybe this is this year's coda. You know, the kind of movie that everybody likes when they see it. But maybe only maybe it's like will only become the heartwarming dark horse as the season progresses like once you get all of the like more hyped movies out of the way and then people maybe will catch up with this on streaming or something hmm. possibly i mean like it's funny what you say about like coda because like yeah my i i, I was shocked to hear that my sister had seen coda and then when she made my parents watch it I was not shocked that they loved it, but it was just one of those things where I'm, I, it was like that thing of like, yeah, anyone who sees this movie is going to love it unless they're a critic. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved Coda. I liked Coda a lot. I'm still. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, that's too. nice. Yeah. It was nice. I mean, we all have our feelings about what does it mean to be an Oscar movie or whatever, but like it, it sort of caught on to people. I saw, I right now I have not met anybody who hasn't liked this movie um wait, maybe you, we'll start to get wait say that again i have not met anybody who has not liked this movie oh okay i heard i have not met anyone who has liked this movie and i was like no I no, like no that's no. completely not true just here on this podcast like the audience that i was in i saw it at the kendall uh square movie theater it, they ate it up i mean they i mean we were the youngest people in the movie theater but like <laughs> they sat through the entire credits and and also clapped at the end <laughs> like i mean it's a great movie this, this is yeah. this, this movie is is phenomenal like i just i keep coming back to that like it's just so good like when it comes to, if i had gotten a physical screener of this movie i would have violated the screener agreement by bringing it home for christmas and showing <laughs> it to my parents Aww. like they will right. they will love this movie it's a crowd pleaser. Right. Yeah. So, Robin, you weren't at the screening at the Somerville with uh, 
Alexander. No. Then. Well, yeah. first of all, it was on my birthday. I would have, I still would have. Oh, gone. yeah. But remember, but I remember we all oh, remember. Birthday. Happy birthday. We share a birthday. <laughs> oh, yes, what? And, and Brian, you don't. You no, don't. Yeah. Brian. <laughs> no, you don't. But we do. But anyway, I, that's what I did, Robin, on my birthday. I went to, I went, that was my birthday. Well, I went listen, to the movie and I it was, what a wonderful birthday. It was just a great way to have a birthday. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, it was. Listen. And it I was just gone. I had a class. I missed oh. every Monday screening. And apparently all screenings are on Mondays only this season for whatever reason. Right. Uh, yeah, you're in trouble Monday situation. So right. I've, I've missed so many screenings. Oh, my God. Oh, it's I'm sorry. Bad. But anyway, he was he just it was an extraordinary evening watching Alexander Payne speak on stage, but also work a crowd like a like a really fantastic politician i mean he walked around and probably had 50 individual conversations with people in the theater crowding around him he was just so calm talked to everybody i mean he's a let me just say he's a really nice guy (laughs) and that was when i was on the set what was really interesting was you know i said i was an extra with uh, background and i talked to lots of the other background people who had been on the movie for many days and all the people loved him and wow. they all complained about like, you know, other directors and how mean they were. Um, what's his name? David O. Russell. And I think he's the famous shouting at all the extras, but everybody, you know, him and he, I mean, Alexander takes time to know everybody's name and he asks questions. I mean, he just is smooth, but I guess it's not just one day because people worked on the movie many days and everybody just loved him. So that's nice. That's nice that's, to see a director. That's a nice person. Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that's yeah. very different. It must be so his Midwestern background or something. I was curious if this movie was autobiographical in some even very loose way. And I did look up just some basics about him and he did go to a prep school he did. Um, yeah. in Nebraska he right. did go on to Stanford and whatever. So he yeah. had sort of a- he's had that life. Stanford to UCLA. He's had the good life. But I guess the screen the screenwriter uh, as also was a has a real prep school background. Mm. So yeah. Is Catherine arrive, you know, you're ending, but uh you think Catherine Arai is in there somewhere in the mix with you know, it's in everything. And, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't. What swing American a cat fiction since it. has been untouched by Catcher yeah. in the Rye? Right. Well, well, I think this one's touched, right? Oh my God! Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. But I mean, like, like it, I, I think it goes beyond that. Well, I mean, you know, when you when you're when you have when you've when you're when your story <laughs> themes are as elemental as they are in Catcher in the Rye, and is universal. I think, like, yeah, no matter what you do, something's going to touch that. But exactly. the alienated kid at prep school, and there's you know that bastard friend. There's I remember Couch and Rye. Stradladder is his name. His friend, yeah. the guy who hits who hits people in the ass with his towel. You know that's uh, the equivalent of this you know asshole in this movie, and these kind of decrepit <laughs> teachers, and you know yeah, it was something. Everybody's there. a phony, yada yada. Yeah, yeah, man. Everyone is a phony. You're right, Robin. Yeah. everyone's a phony. Right. Everyone's a phony. It really does. There's always like a family member that has like some tragedy. Well, if you really want to hear about it. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I mean, everyone's life is touched with tragedy. So, Jerry, I do have to ask, how did you get the gig? So uh, the gig is it's kind of a long 
story. This is. Uh, do we still have a couple of minutes? How are yeah, we doing? Yeah, we can, we can absolutely. This can be our okay. like ending thing. Well, yeah. Well, this is you know you know my long story. This is because okay, so I have to get philosophical or not. I don't. That's not. That's the wrong word. But I have this. As a longtime film critic, I have this what I call the, the duck theory of film criticism. And if you remember when a duck first sees a person, they they believe that's their parents and they sort of imprint uh, imprint with the person. That's right. So I have found in my many years as a film critic that if I am like well, the first person to write a review and a positive review, I've imprinted <laughs> with directors and they you know remember me forever. Or if I'm at some early showing of the movie, a special place, and this was, I think, the second screening of Citizen Ruth, our, um, Payne's first movie, was at the Montreal Film Festival, and I was at the screening. And this is this is kind of so this is this quick story. So I saw Citizen Ruth and I don't know how many of you seen it, but it's a character who who maybe should get an abortion, but she is becomes the victim of pro-abortion people and anti-abortion people. And at the end, she has a miscarriage. So I raised this objection I, from the audience. I was very nasty. And I said, I find the ending of your movie is a complete cop out. You should be taking us a pro-choice stand. And instead we have this, you know, kind of cowardly ending in which he gets a miscarriage and you don't, you know, as with many movies, when it comes to the moment of having an abortion, the movie will not, will somehow cop out on that. And the result was after the press conference was over, Alexander Payne walks over to me the friendliest guy in the world. And we have a talk. He's not mad at what my question. And, and I think of a, a, a few weeks later or something at the very beginning of um, email, really one of the first emails I this ever got like in my 90, life. 96, 97. When does email start? 96. Uh, yeah. I think that's when the movie came out. Okay. So. Well, anyway, one of the first emails I ever got in my life was Alexander Payne saying, hi, we met when you mentioned, are you coming to this film festival? What? So that's, that's like email three I ever got. Oh, so so <laughs> weird. So I've seen him just briefly a couple of other film festivals and I like at con once and we chatted a bit, but just you when accepted he was, him. but he was him. Yeah. So, but I was imprinted. And when he came to Boston, um, for this movie, I get an email one day saying, hi, this is Alexander Payne. I'm in town. Would you like to get together? Oh, and I said, sure. And I actually invited him over. And uh, Robin knows, as she is, I'm a big cook and I care about f food like mm -hmm. crazy. And and he came over with his girlfriend. And He went to your house? He came to my house. What? Yeah. In like yeah. Davis Square? Yeah. He came to my house and I made him dinner and he... My wife's name is Amy. His girlfriend's name is Amy, and we. What'd you cook? I cooked this kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of a fish soup with shrimp and all kinds of seafood, a seafood thing, and it was really good. It worked. Took a chance. Anyway, you know, we had a great evening, and he was nice as he could be. And then he said, "Hey, um, would you like to be, you know, would you like to be an extra in my movie?" Sure. And then I came to the set, and he was again like. So you thought, yelled at this little young know nothing wet behind the ears director and yeah. he wants to so please you 
for the rest of his life. But I know, yeah, but he, yeah, I think, but I don't know. I don't get it. But anyway, and he's all, you know, when I was on the <laughs> set, he, you know, I thought, okay, he's now he's going to ignore me because I'm extra. And then he tells everybody, hey, Jerry, I was just at his house last week. And boy, he made the best meal for me. And he was just <laughs> nice as he could be. And then when I came to that screening, you know, I got Amy and I got these huge hugs and he's, he's my pal. I Yeah, I screamed about that movie, that damn abortion, you know, and he's still wrong. He should <laughs> he was a coward about the abortion thing. But uh, anyway. He's my best friend. I love his movie. <laughs> and but I'm not sure about that. But don't tell him. I'm not sure about that ending. Anyway. So that's just is that is that enough of the yeah, story? So the that's reason it. you're critiquing the holdover's ending is because you want a bigger part in his next movie. You're negging him. Well, I de- oh I de- well, I definitely want a bigger uh, yeah. On the other hand, I don't know if you know I was in this movie Computer Chess. Have, have you guys seen that movie? You should have. I have not, I've but I'm aware of it. Of it. Okay, well, I have a big part in computer chess. That's my huh. career, and uh, I'm very pr- proud of that. So I've been trying to get him to watch that movie, and but so he has a couple stuff. <laughs> More stuff? No, I'm ready. I'm I'm ready for a second act desperately uh, as an actor. But you have to if you you must see computer chess. Anybody listening to this? Um, that's Andrew Bajalski's film, one of the strangest movies ever made, and I actually have a big. <laughs> I actually have a big part in it, so. And I like I like Check Andrew Pajalski because he did um. Oh, what's it called? It's it's a uh, it's uh, the one about the uh, the people with the uh, the gym. I can't, why why can't I remember yeah. what the name of that? I can never remember too, but that, yeah, it's uh. That one. Well, he also did support the girls. I remember that one. Yep. <laughs> I can remember yep. that he name. No those. problem. Oh, no results. Ever shut up about that? Movie. Funny, funny, haha. And I don't know if you saw that anyway, but but. Computer chess is the strangest movie. One of the you have never seen this movie in your life, which is a real virtue. It's a really odd movie. And I play this chess master in the movie. And anyway, see it. Yeah. I'll have to go check that out. Yeah. Man, you've given us so many movies. I gotta see the last detail. Oh yeah. I gotta yeah. see a, a very curious girl. I got yeah, that's true, Robin. Yeah. So I will Yeah. I'm writing them you. down. You, you you have a month. <laughs> Because you got to watch all the Christmas full, movies. Okay, I got a full month. <laughs> you gotta, yes, yeah. all the Christmas. So according to uh, IMDb, Computer Chess is playing on Prime Video. Yes. Check it it's out. It's on Prime, and I think it's also uh, Canopy, and I think it's also the Criterion Collection. You have a lot of places to watch it. All right. So, uh, Brian, please take watch it also. Not just yeah, Robin. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got homework. <laughs> you got homework. Listening to this podcast. It's painful. It's painful. It. I know. You thought you were going to get off free and instead you've got homework. Jerry wants to get some residuals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was, I made $900. $900 for that movie. Yeah. I will watch it again just as soon as I'm done watching Oppenheimer again. Yeah. You're going to watch Oppenheimer a fourth time? Yeah. Hell yeah. I just bought the 4K, didn't I? Don't threaten yeah. me with a good time. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for right. today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jerry, talking with you about this well, fantastic thank you. movie that I think everyone should see. Great. And I'm I've, 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 sorry if I sounded too cynical at points because, uh, Brian, you know, I support the idea of a better world, a more joyful world. And I'm also glad that your friends are being better people that's i am that's, that's a good thing i am also psyched about that because i don't know if you've ever listened to any of this podcast before but a lot of my friends have had a lot of problems um yep. 
Uh, speaking yeah. about uh, friends and problems, uh, Robin, what's the next movie that we're talking about? I think we decided on May, December. Woo! Exciting. So get the not lesbian movie. <laughs> yes, the non lesbian yeah. romance. Non lesbian. Very non lesbian. No matter what the title and the uh, director and the poster and might the have you poster think. The poster and the key art. <laughs> <laughs> it is apparently not yeah. a lesbian romance. Nope. <laughs> this, this is also a good plug for our Slack channel, which you can join by becoming a patron of this podcast for $1 an episode. Is that like someone posted about May December and like people were just like, ah, yes, the lesbian romance, the tried and true Oscar season. And then someone just burst in and was like, it's not. And we're like, what? What do you mean it's not? It has to be. Look (laughs) at it. It's Todd Haynes. (laughs) How could it not be? Um, But we're going to find out. So join us when we talk about that. That'll be fun. Um, And don't forget, again, to go and uh, get your 30-day trial subscription movie by going to MU bi.com slash film stage so you can check out uh what was the book a very curious girl a very curious girl hell yeah which is delicious all right um and now let's tell the fine people where we can be found between now and the next time that we are in their ears we begin with our guest jerry where can people uh find you and your writings and your thoughts and opinions well you can find well you can the place i write most is believe it or not facebook I have this little thing. I write these like haiku, two paragraph reviews or write about culture and politics and whatever. So friend me on Facebook and you can read my little missives. All right. Awesome. Robin Barr, what about yourself? Um, I guess I'm still on Twitter-ish uh, at Robin Barr. <laughs> I'm also on Letterboxd. Um I don't know why is this question always so hard. You can sometimes <laughs> you find have my this writing. Down by now. I know it's because like <laughs> I used to be enthusiastic about being like, and you can find me on Twitter, and now it's like that's I write for the know, Hollywood Reporter. I yes, I sometimes write for the Hollywood Reporter. So we wrote a best uh, TV of the century list that didn't have Lost on it for some reason. Yes, <laughs> and I stand by it. That is the <laughs> craziest opinion you've ever held. <laughs> I listen. I'm not the only person on this committee, but so. You know, get to the other people who are on it too. Yeah, but you're the only one I talk to regularly, so. Well, none of nobody was enthusiastic about Lost or the well, leftovers. Wow, but the leftovers was on there. Yeah, but I'm not saying anybody was like so enthusiastic about it. Well, you need some new people writing for you then, because you have the wrong people according to everything you just said. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, as for myself. BrianJRowan.com. You can learn about my whiskey at inkwellwhiskey.com. And of course, you can find my writing and every episode of this here podcast over at thefilmstage.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next time. <laughs>